But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So it's been a a few weeks since I have had the privilege of being able to stand here and continue this section on the cross. And we will look at, we have looked at the cross last time I was here. Today we will look at it and next week as well from just this one verse. And the reason I'm spending so much time on this particular verse is that it really is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. It's everything that you and I, if you are in Christ, you believe in Jesus Christ, we are a people of the cross. And the cross is significant in ways that perhaps we have never dreamt of or imagined. But if you will join me as we look and explore this tremendous work that God has done through Christ Jesus. I hope you'll find it to be fruitful for your souls, and most of all, that it will show you that there is no sweeter and greater pursuit than to know Christ crucified. We're looking then at this glory that is found in the cross through three points. First is the exception of the cross that we see in chapter 6, verse 14 of Galatians. Second is the ease that we think we have in the cross. And third is the exaltation of the cross. So let's first look at the exception of the cross. In verse 14, again, I'm going to read it one more time. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our, world, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, if you're like me, you like boasting. Um, in fact, I think for much of the world, even our own hearts, it's hard not to boast, meaning to speak of ourselves, to speak of those we find boastworthy, maybe our children, maybe our parents, maybe our friends, maybe our sports team. And it's, it's just so ingrained within us. And you look at this verse and you see that Paul says, actually boast not in anything except the cross. What's really remarkable about boasting is that it can happen with anything and all things. It can happen even with religious things, things that you think, well, that does, seems a little contradictory to boasting. Can you boast about evangelism? Boast about missions, boast about ministry, boast about serving or giving, praying, fasting. Clearly, if you read the New Testament, you realize, yes, it is possible to boast in even spiritual things. And perhaps sometimes we don't even realize how much we boast. When we consider, for example, the United States of America, in America, we are very bound by numbers, by metrics. Some of you are financial analysts or economists, or even if you're not, even if you work at a hospital or, hospital or a school or some office, so much of our lives are dictated by numbers, metrics, quantifiable figures that determine what? Success or failure? I think most of you, all of us, are in a regular way dealing with that. The idea that metrics, numbers, counting, determines whether you are a successful person 
or a failure as a person. And so we have the profit margin that determines the success of a company, sales quotas. Economically speaking, in a macro level, we have the GDP or the trade deficit. Is there a surplus or a deficit? We have today, we talk a lot about inflation, 5.4%. Um, there are many different numbers, the market cap of a company that determine is there success or is there failure? Not just on the macro level though, there's also even our own families. Perhaps you determine your success as a person who is providing for your family by the number of dollars that you bring into your household. Or perhaps it's your children show success or failure by a grade, A, B, C, D, or F. Another metric that we use, maybe it's what place do you come in when it comes to a dance competition or an art competition or in a tournament in baseball or in basketball? Are you the MVP? All of these things in some way determine success or failure. You know, sadly, we actually do the same thing in the church as well. We determine success or failure by how many people come on Sundays. I know when we first started the church and there were, um, I'd go to these pastor's meetings. And when you meet someone, you introduce yourself, they introduce them, themselves, and you know what, usually about the third question was always, oh, how big is your church? And then the second question is, what's your budget? <laughs> and you, you are either very gladly willing to say, oh, it's this many people, or with hesitancy oh, we're only, only whatever. And that number is more than a number. It's a value of who you are. It's a sense of worth. And that's in ministry. And so it's, it's tragic that we think that way about the world, about even people we care about, and even the church. There are missionaries who will go abroad, and the temptation to send forth reports, because there's always a reporting, and it's always quantifiable, and there's a metric, how many people are saved, how many people attend the Bible study that you're leading. And if you have a lot of people, then you're succeeding, you're a successful missionary. If you don't have as many, then you're a failure. This is sort of the, the road upon which we sort of consider life. But Paul says this in this verse, that the cross of Christ is the only place you must boast. Everything else is not boastworthy. And what does the cross show us in the world? Paul tells the church in, the church, uh, the church in Corinth that when you are looking at the cross, the cross is a place not of strength and power in the world's eyes, but weakness. It's foolishness to look at the cross. It's not wisdom. It's weakness. It's shameful. And yet, when we understand it rightly, it is the power of God. That the way that God views the cross, it is his economy, his way of understanding metrics. And it far supersedes anything the world 
considers. You look at the Bible and when you see numbers, so often those numbers actually lead to really dreadful consequences. There was a king by the name of David. And some of you know his story. He was very successful. But at the very, sort of the pinnacle of his reign, if you read the end of Second Samuel, or you read Kings and Chronicles, Chronicles, you see something that he does that is so shocking that it leads to devastating consequences. Anyone remember what he does? He counts his army. Why does he count his army? Why does God take that so seriously? Because God knows David's heart. And in David's heart was a heart of boasting. Boasting in not Israel, boasting in himself. And God knew it. And so because he was the leader of his people, the, the sin that he was committing was not just on his own, but it had lasting consequences, severe consequences to even the people he was caring for. And this counting is so significant because consider who David was. He was a man after God's own heart. But how did God select him? Not based on metrics. He was the shortest guy in his family. He was the youngest. So from a metrics perspective, he was, he offered nothing. Eliab was the one who was firstborn. He was the soldier. He looked the part of king. But God didn't choose him for that. God chose the weak one. God always takes the approach of the cross when it comes to showing who God is. It's not just David, though. Nebuchadnezzar faced the same thing. He looked over the kingdom of Babylon and said, look at all that I've done. And then suddenly he's eating grass like a cow. Um, you look at Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. When all the different people are bringing their offerings, free will offerings, God didn't say you must come with this much money. They just, people would just start coming and saying, I want to bless the church this way. And so Ananias and Sapphira are looking and saying, wow, if they're giving 10%, I think we'll give, well, let's lie and say we gave 100%, but we'll really only give 15%, whatever that number was. See, their, their mindset was so dictated by the numbers, by what they looked like, by counting and what happened to them? Struck dead in a moment. Jesus gives another parable about metrics. He actually talks about uh, the, the rich man who builds his barns. What is he doing when he's building his barns? He's getting ready for retirement. I think we, he's, you know, he's pumping up his 401k, doing, getting, saying, I need to max out my pension plan at work. And he's investing his money and doing all that because he thinks, when I hit 65, I'm going to really enjoy life then. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to be able to go on cruises. I'm going to be able to do all this. And it's all for me. And then on the night that he turns 65, God says, you fool, I'm going to take you tonight. Metrics. Same idea. You know what happened to Herod? He looked around and said, I have everything. And then God says he struck him down and his, his uh, intestines spilled out. 
It's a, it's a really shocking thing when you look at scripture and you see how many different people count the bills, you might say, of their lives. Say, ooh, I made this much, I made this much, I did this. And when they're ready to spend it, God says, you're a fool. You think that matters that much? You think first place in a dance competition matters that much when you've given your life? To the college student who says, I need to study. I can't go to church because I have to get an A because I have to become a doctor so that I could please my parents. And then you become a doctor. And then you think, and then you have children and they're rebellious. And then they turn away from the Lord and you're crying out and saying, why, why did this happen? It all started because someone was counting. Someone was saving up for themselves. See, this is a, not a, a problem of a few people. This is all of our problems. And the Apostle Paul is challenging us with this one verse. He's saying, where are you placing your boasting? Are you boasting in your children and their successes? You boast in your children when they strike out and you get really angry at them or when they miss a putt and you become really frustrated or they fall, like they don't practice enough at dance class and you think, well, you got, I'm investing all this money in this time. It's a, it's a problem of our own souls. And we're all guilty of it. Paul says, no, don't do that. Or if you're saving up for retirement and that's your dream, that's your life, that's your vision, and you get there and you, you think that's everything for you, you'll be sorely mistaken. Paul says there's only one type of counting that matters. He writes about it in, to the Roman church in Romans 4, 24 to 25, when he says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you see what Paul is saying there? He's saying the, the Savior and his righteous deeds, his perfect righteousness, that's going to be counted to you when you believe and your sins that have been piled up are going to be placed on his shoulders at the cross. He's delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. All of that counting, that is the most essential counting in the world. It's where freedom comes. Because it means that you're freed from your failures and your successes. It, you don't glory in wealth that is fleeting, or a house that you've saved up all your life to purchase and to own and to say, I've made it, I'm ready to retire, I can relax, I can make sure that I'm secure. My friends, I wanna ask you this question. Is your retirement savings your ultimate security? Are you saving up and making sure that that God is gonna protect you? Because big earthquake comes, you're, you get cancer in a moment's notice, a drunk driver comes down the road and smashes into your family's car and everyone is gone. Suddenly retirements don't matter that much at all, if anything. I know I'm speaking, it sounds like I'm speaking to a bunch of people who are aging. And that's me. <laughs> I didn't used to preach about retirement that much. It's a, it's a very interesting thing. You come to realize, 
it's amazing how quickly things shift from preaching about, oh, how to make it through when your kids aren't sleeping at, a, at six months to speaking about retirement. But it's all the same. You know, really fundamentally is, is that when we place our hope in our comforts, our success, our wealth, we will always be disappointed. If you live to be popular, you will eventually fall out of favor. Your world will crumble when that happens. I remember during the dot-com boom where in the late 90s, a friend of mine, in, he, he was um, just investing in all sorts of tech stocks and he made millions of dollars, actually. And I remember literally when the crash happened, in one night, he literally went from a few million dollars to zero. And his world was devastated. He could not get out of bed. He was absolutely in the dumps. And you're probably thinking, I think I would be in the dumps too. That would be really hard. But when your life is rooted on such things, get ready for your world to crumble and crash. The cross is the only certainty in the world that has viruses and market corrections and rumors of wars and different fads that are passing and fleeting, tragic accidents, diagnoses of cancer. What Paul is telling us is that to place your hope in a savior whose righteousness is counted yours because he's compassionate and gracious, not because of anything you and I have done, just because he's merciful. That is the secret to our utmost joy. Paul writes about this in uh, Philippians chapter four, verses 11 through 13. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It is possible, it is possible to be in the lowest of lows. Um, I was talking to George Sneeman, who is the um, you know, president of Hands at Work, and he's right now in Goma, and again, for the next few weeks. And if you know, and you've been with us, you know that the DRC is one of the poorest of places, just wrought with all sorts of wars and terrible things. So many of these grandmothers and grandfathers, they have literally nothing. And one of the things that he told me was, you know, someone came up to him and said, I know that there is an eternity, but is there anything for me in this world? And he's talking to someone who's, we're not talking about someone who isn't able to buy the car of their dreams. It's someone who doesn't have food to eat. And he wrestled with that question. You know, I think for us who hear and perhaps consider such things, we have in mind all sorts of luxuries. And we say, can I live without that? Can I live without popularity? Can I live without electronics, my phone? We're not thinking, can I live without food? Can I live without access to clean water or just to simple basic healthcare? And when you are weighing that, that's when you really are digging deep into this idea of, can you know this secret that Paul is speaking about here in Philippians? 
Can you be content in that? Is it possible? The only way it is possible is the cross of Christ, as I hope you will see soon. Because the cross shows us that whether you have plenty or want, you can still be content. How can that be? Let's look at that. Next is we see that there is an ease, an ease when it comes to the cross. This should not be, but it happens way too easily, is that we should never say the cross was easy for Jesus. And perhaps we think, I never do say that. I don't think the cross was easy. Well, we live as though something we do makes us righteous before God. And when we do that, we are saying the cross is easy. If we think God loves me because I went to church today, oh, I had my quiet time today, and so nothing bad should happen today because I actually spend time with the Lord. And let's say that is your worst day of the week. You open your Bible, you read it, you pray, and on that day, you get into a car accident. On that day, you hear some really bad news about one of your kids are at school and they got called into the principal's office and the principal called you. On that day, you got into a conflict with your spouse. And you say to yourself, but I had my quiet time today, Lord. This is the one day out of the week. And why is everything so messed up? This is so unfair. See, it only takes that little twist to think, oh, actually, I don't need the cross. What I really needed was to do good deeds. And God is supposed to pat me on the back and say, you know, Sam, you're pretty good. You've done a lot of great things for me of late. And because of that, I think you deserve a break today. You deserve salvation. When we have that heart, we say the cross was easy. We don't need the cross at that point because we're our own savior. Every time we think that things go well for us because of something we do, and God should actually favor us because of those things that we do, we actually have no clue about how difficult the cross was. If we feel we deserve a good life, that we should be prosperous because we're Christians, we don't understand the cross. That's why the prosperity gospel is so contrary to the true gospel. It is exactly an oxymoron. How can you ever say, I believe in Jesus who gave his life for me, and yet at the same time think that my life should be good because of all the good things that I do? That's, that just doesn't work. We are able to call on the name of the Lord, not because of what we do, that is righteous, but because of what God has done. Or also, if we condemn ourselves, if we think our sins are far too great, then we think the cross is far too easy for us. I don't care what sin you have committed in your life, and it could be dark and dreadful. Maybe you've aborted a child. Maybe you have looked at some of the most vilest of things on a computer screen. Maybe you have stolen something that you should never have stolen. Maybe you have deceived someone over and over again. Maybe there's a, just a dark secret that if someone knew, maybe you, you're infatuated with someone else's husband or wife. Maybe you've committed adultery and broken covenantal faithfulness. 
Maybe you've murdered someone physically. I'm not just talking spiritually, physically. Do you think God can forgive that? If the answer is no, then we don't understand the cross. We think the cross is easy. As vile as anything we have done, the cross is infinitely more vile. It is the, that one place that the worst of all that human beings could ever do in conglomerate together. It, all of that is infinitely greater than our single sin, what Jesus bore for us at that cross. And so if God can and does forgive sinners and sins because of Jesus through the cross, then not only when we are unwilling to forgive ourselves is it deeming the cross too easy, also when we are unwilling to forgive other people. When we say, no, you know what? You've crossed that line, line far too many times. You've done something that I can never forgive. Then you don't really believe the cross was difficult. You think it was easy for Jesus. We are never forgiven easily. The cost of God forgiving us is infinitely greater than any price we will ever pay in this world. God never forgives you easily. He paid a dear price. So you must forgive yourself no matter what you've done because Jesus paid that price for you. And you must forgive another person no matter what they've done because Jesus paid that price. And until we really understand the value and power of this cross and the freedom that it gives us to forgive ourselves, one another, then we still don't get it. We still think the cross is too easy. Lastly, the cross is worthy of our boasting because it exalts Jesus above everything. It destroys sin, the world, and the devil. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, and you who are dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your faith, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The pile of debt that we owe our God because of our sin it outstrips the U.S. deficit of $30 trillion. And if you've ever seen one of those graphics of how much a trillion dollars is, I mean, you could lay $1 trillion across, and it's something, it circles the globe or something like that if you take each dollar. And if you multiply that by 30, it's just, it goes way out into space. Well, that is, it pales in comparison to the debt that we owe our God in our sins. And yet... God at that cross, at the right time, has wiped away our sin. He has destroyed the power of Satan and his dominion and all that he controls. He has broken the power of the world and its allure over our souls. And Christ has truly triumphed. And what does this mean? It means that Christ has won. Jesus has won. He's won the day. And so when you open your phones and read the news in the morning, right, isn't it very tempting to feel anxious 
and frustrated and angry. You know what's interesting? It has nothing to do with political party or what your value systems are. Everyone believes that the world is getting bad. If you're right or left, conservative, liberal, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter who you are, you think, you read the world and you say, oh, it's getting bad. Everyone thinks that because from their perspective, it's not going perfectly great. And you read that and it just is so taxing to our souls. You know why? Because we forget Christ has won. Try reading a book from the end. Anyone do this? Read the end of the book and a thriller, let's say. You know the end of the story. And then in the middle of a book, like good thrillers, they always have these ups and downs that try to bring the audience to this roller coaster emotional pull that you're going, yes, everything's great. Oh, no, it's terrible. It's great. But when you know the end, suddenly those emotional roller coasters aren't there as much. You just say, yeah, but I know the end. That's why most of us don't like watching movies for the second, third time when you know the end, unless you really do like it. And I do. I like knowing, oh, yeah, the good guy wins. So then I can watch Lord of the Rings and know, oh, yeah, okay, they, they, they bring it. You know, they they've complete the task. It's over. And that's what we have. Do you see that? The cross shows us Christ has won. That's what this verse shows us in Colossians 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them over them. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He's done the work. He's won victory. So when you open your news, can you really say, I have peace? I, I can trust. Or when you hear the diagnosis from the doctor, can you say, I have peace? When perhaps you lose your job, or maybe you had millions of dollars in the bank and suddenly you have zero, you say, I have peace. Can you do that? If your kids don't make it to the place that you had always dreamt about, can you say, I have peace? You can only believe that if Jesus has won. But if you don't really believe Jesus has won, then every single part of your life that is sort of penetrating your soul, that will rule over your heart. And is it any wonder why we go through times of sorrows and grievings and despairings and real anxieties? When Christ has won, we have it all. And we spent a lot of time in Ephesians chapter 6 looking at spiritual warfare. One of the main points of that passage is this, is that that is reality. What's happening in the heavenlies, the battle for that, is, that rages between God and the enemy is what's happening in real time. And what we are living here is but a foreshadowing of what is to ultimately come forever. Because if forever is really true, then this what we experience now is but a small time in our lives. And one thing we know is that the cross is the place where the power of death and sin and Satan is broken forever. And that dreadful power, it enslaves. There's a fear behind it. And the cross neutralizes it. Do you know that right now, at this very moment, there is an active war engaged for your soul? And there is a desire to give up so often in our own hearts. 
we are tempted to do so because there is a Satan who, though he has been defeated, is like a wounded, dying animal. He will do all that he can to claw and strip so that he can drag you along with him. There is still your sin. There is still the world. And God still gave his son in the midst of this. And Jesus helps us even when we are at our lowest. I remember when I was in the sixth grade and like many of us, I had a mother. I have a mother who loves me, cared for me, still does so. But you know, when you're in the sixth grade, there are numbers of things that are happening. There's hormones. There's wanting to fit in, to be popular, to be known. And I used to have really long hair. Um, actually, long as when I look at some of the guys in our church and see their hair, I think that was me. I was exact. I used to carry a comb in my back pocket. Uh, back then, it was pretty popular. I don't know why. And um, now, when my kids see the picture of me when I was in sixth grade, they they don't. They're almost embarrassed. They're embarrassed. And I look at it, and I feel that as well. So, guys, if you care too much about your hair, know that one day you're going to look back feeling embarrassed. Well, that was me. I would look in the mirror, and one day I was in the mirror combing my hair, fixing it perfectly, getting that perfect ugly hair but good hair at the same time. And my mother came into my uh, to the bathroom while I, was, while I was combing my hair, and she started you know, just saying, what are you doing? Why are you... He's spending so much time. You got to get going and just nagging me. And my hormonal rebellious self, I didn't know the Lord. And so, you know what came out of my heart was I just started cursing her. I mean, saying every single word that I could think of, and I knew a lot of them, towards her. And um, it just all spewed out of my mouth, just literally like a volcano. And there are two things that are so clear to me about that incident that to this day are seared into my memory. The first is I remember my mother's face. And though English was not her first language, in fact, English was, her English was pretty poor, but she understood tone, she understood my face, and I wasn't wearing a mask, so it was obviously probably demonic for all I know. And all I saw in her face, and I'll never forget it, is the pain that was there. It was such a deep pain that to this day, I cannot get it out of my, my mind. In fact, it was so strong that to this day, I'm pretty much sure about this, I have not said a single curse word since that day of the sixth grade. It's not that it's not in my heart. I just can't do it because of looking at my mom's face. The second thing is just how vile my heart was. Me, a teenager, having no clue, this woman who cleaned my diapers and attended to me when I was vomiting when I was sick and you know, cooked meals for me waiting as I was waiting for the bus and waking up at five in the morning every day and cooking a meal for me and doing all these things. And in that moment, all I cared about was my self-centered self, vile, rebellious evil. 
Yeah, I, I, after the first worship, I actually asked some people, hey, so uh, you ever done that to your mom? And not a, everyone said, no, I, I didn't do that. They actually had to uh, hide their face and be like, no, no, no. That I, 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 you know, someone said, oh, I did curse, but wasn't that my mom? No, I, wouldn't do, I would never do that. That was me. You, prob- you know, the Bible says someone who does that as a child in the Old Testament, they should be stoned to death. I mean, not saying we should do that, or I wouldn't be here. But uh, this is the vileness of my heart. Teenagers, high schoolers, junior hires, if that's your heart today, there's hope for you. You know why? Because Jesus died for you. But you have to see that is a vile heart. You cannot have that heart towards your parents. And I had that heart, and I look back ashamedly today. So when we sing that song, Ashame My Mocking Voice, that's me, that's my heart. But that's why the cross is so wonderful to me. Because if it wasn't for that cross, I wouldn't be standing here today. I would have no place. There is something in our souls we have to see that Teaching Sunday school kids, trying to go to church every Sunday, having a quiet time, going on a mission trip, that does not make up for this heart. It doesn't. It cannot change my soul. It takes something so drastic, drastically loving. That's called the cross. God the Son who bore our shame, our arrogance, our sorrows, our pride for a wretch like me. It is the power of God. C.S. Lewis warns us, if a man thinks he is not conceited, he is very conceited indeed. If a man thinks he is not conceited, he is very conceited indeed. Every one of us has this darkened heart. If you believe you're not that person, My friend, I'm really concerned for you. You're not seeing yourself as you are. At the cross is that place of shame and scorn where Jesus died in such an undignified way for all the world to see. You know, it was at that cross that Jesus died naked. He died for all the world. Ever been sick? You know, when we get sick and you're laying in bed, your hair is all unkempt, breath doesn't smell so good, you have eye crust in your eyes, you know, you're, you're all messed up. And then someone calls you and says, hey, I want to come over and I'm going to bring chicken soup and I want to pray for you. What do you say to them? No, 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 no. No one wants to be seen sick because it just is so vulnerable and you're just helpless. Well, Jesus died on a cross helpless. He had no choice. Everyone saw him undignified. There is nothing more undignifying than death. When you die, you cannot control your mouth. If it's, I've seen it. People can't, their mouths are open. They can't even close their mouth. They can't control whether their eyes are open or not. They don't care about what their hair looks like. or what. Oh, The only people who care are people who are trying to 
you know, get someone to look better than they are. But how do you make a dead person look good? You cannot because death is undignified. God died undignified for you, for me. He died a death of shame and of guilt so that he could give us dignity, so that he could love you with an everlasting love, so that you can, he can be assured that one day you will be with him. And no matter how vile and evil our hearts, and no matter what we've done, God still loves you. He gave his life for you. So may we, like Paul, say and agree, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this table today just humbled by your son who died that undignified death on that cross so that we might have life with you forever. So that our bodies, though wasting away, being renewed day by day, and one day eternally will be resurrected and glorified. Thank you for that cross that bore our shame and that there is nothing we can do that can separate us from your love. I pray, Father, that we would have a deep realization of our own conceited souls, but realize even more so that you gave your son so that we might have life forever with you. So as we take this bread and this wine, O oh Lord, may we do so just so mindful of how blessed we are and how much you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.